One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week we'll be discussing Northern Rock's return to riskier lending. It's a striking moment in Northern Rock's progress. The bank is by no means the first lender to go back up to 90%. Is doing this really to try and boost its profits. Then we'll be taking a look at HSBC and the key figures from its full year results announced today, Monday. I think the message was sort of a no-nonsense approach from Mr Gulliver and it'll be interesting to see how that feeds through to his strategy. And we end the show with the topic of Middle East investors, tension again in Italy over the investment in Unicredit. What has happened is that they have a board member and their board member is a gentleman from the Central Bank of Libya. He's gone missing. Joining me in the studio to discuss these topics are Charlene Goff, Lena Seigel, in Milan, Rachel Sanderson. And we have Justin Baer on the line in New York for our regular update about the banking sector in America, stateside. Let's go straight to New York. Over to you, Justin. Thanks, Patrick. Last week, we saw more Swiss bankers ensnared in the U.S. government's long-running tax evasion probe. And the chairman of the FDIC declared 2010 a turnaround year for the U.S. banking sector while warning of risks of rising interest rates. A credit Swiss banker named Christos Bagios was arrested earlier this month in connection with the U.S. crackdown on tax evasion. The arrest, made as Mr. Bagios was entering the U.S., came two months after authorities had charged Renzo Gadola, a former UBS banker. Mr. Bagios had worked for UBS before joining rival Credit Suisse in 2009. And a day later, prosecutors announced criminal charges against four bankers that had worked previously with Credit Suisse. In Washington, the chairman of the FDIC, Sheila Baer, said the nation's banks had recovered from its bleak days of 2008 and need to lend more to help spur the economy. The industry swung to a profit in the fourth quarter to $21.7 billion, compared with a $1.8 billion loss a year earlier. Meantime, banks eagerly await word from the Federal Reserve on whether they've passed the important stress test that will determine when and how much capital they'll be able to return to shareholders in the form of stock buybacks and dividend increases. But even though many banks can tout excess liquidity and rising capital ratios, yet another risk looms, the possibility that rising interest rates will crimp the profits banks collect on the spread between their borrowing costs and the rate at which they lend. We're entering the part of the cycle where banks can get caught flat-footed by snapping up fixed-income securities with longer durations. And in her address last week, Ms. Baer warned against the perils of interest rate risk. The question remains if all regulated institutions have heeded this warning. Thank you, and back to you, Patrick. Thanks very much, Justin. So to our first topic today, Northern Rock. Charlene, you broke the story this morning that Northern Rock, which is the nationalised lender, an icon really for the financial crisis and when it collapsed in back in 2007, they are starting to offer from this week, you say, 90% mortgages again, which is maybe a far cry from the 125% that they did at the height of the crisis or pre-crisis, but nonetheless seen as rather a sensitive issue. Is it going to be as contentious, do you think, as it, as it might seem? I think it's going to attract a lot of attention. I mean, I think it's important to say that Northern Rock is by no means the first lender to go back up to 90%. We've got some of the other big lenders at this level. But I think given its name, given, as you said, it was the 
most aggressive lender in, in the boom years with its Together mortgage, which notoriously offered uh, borrowers up to 125% of the property value. And that played a huge part in Northern Rock's downfall. Those high loan-to-value mortgages accounted for a huge proportion of, of the losses it faced. It's a striking moment in Northern Rock's progress. The bank is doing this really to try and boost its profits. Why does it want to boost its profits? You might have thought that was a government-owned bank. It wants to be uh, super safe. I think that's why it could attract some criticism. I mean, really, Northern Rock is trying to get itself out of government control and on the path back to private ownership. It's appointed Morgan Stanley, the investment bank, to advise on its options, and it's really trying to accelerate that process now, hoping to get a deal done sometime this year. So it is still loss-making, and that could be a big deterrent for any buyer. So trying to do these kind of higher-margin lending is a way to boost revenue and try and make itself look more attractive to potential buyers. Lena, do you think that hyping up the the risk profile of the bank is likely to attract potential bidders? Well, I think these banks are in these big dilemmas where they have to control their risky lending while trying to make money. And so obviously, the more risk they go into, the more bidders will be interested. So I think that will make it more attractive in a way. But it's just going to see how far they can push the envelope without the government coming in and clamping down on them again. The other interesting point is that given that it is a government-backed lender, it needs to be kind of on the front foot to help first-time buyers. I mean, these are notoriously sort of underserved section of the market, and they are reliant on these kinds of deals to, to get their foot on the housing ladder. The worry is that house prices are starting to fall again. We had Lloyds last week predicting a 2% fall in house prices this year, so that immediately sort of eats into the equity that people have in their property. Northern Rock is, is slightly different to Lloyd's and, and RBS in that it never financed private equity, etc. during the debt boom. Good. Let's move on to another bank which would like to see itself at the other end of the risk spectrum, I suspect, HSBC. They've come out with reasonably strong results Monday morning, but slightly disappointing in certain areas, particularly their cost control. And I think probably their outlook statement that they expect, well, they've basically downgraded their return on equity uh, target from between 15 and 19 percent to 12 to 15. That's really hit the share price down as much as 4 percent already this morning. Charlene, do you think it's a, it's a fair reflection or are investors over punishing HSBC? It's a fair reflection, really. I mean, the return on equity downgrades are pretty severe. They've gone from... 20% down, basically. Yeah, and the new level of about 12 to 15%, which is at the bottom end of, of what we've seen come through at other banks. So I think there is a definite reason to be quite disappointed there. And there were some other slightly worrying issues as well. Like you mentioned costs, um, and it wasn't just the fact that cost base was a, a higher than expected level last year. But Stuart Gulliver this morning said to reporters that he expects it to take two to three years to bring that back to the level he would like. So it's going to be very slow progress there, getting the costs back down. It was Stuart Gulliver, the new chief executive's first full-on outing with investors and journalists this morning. You you listened to that call. What was your impression? Well, one interesting point is that they decided not to have a 
physical press conference. They normally do that here in London. Also no investor meeting, was there? No, exactly. So it was more distant than we're used to. And I think they did have to get through a huge volume of questions because they take questions from reporters all over the world. Some very technical, some more sort of mainstream. The UK focused a lot on pay, but it seemed quite clinical. He wanted to seem to get through the questions very quickly. He was fairly abrupt at times. But I think the message was sort of a no-nonsense approach from Mr Gulliver. And, you know, that's it'd be interesting to see how that feeds through to his strategy. He was very reluctant to answer any questions on his broader strategy for the bank, which obviously people wanted to hear about today. Like you said, it was his first outing. But he shut those kind of questions down very quickly and said that they'll be doing a broader investor day in May and they would address those kinds of issues then. Very good. Okay, we'll have to leave HSBC there, but let's move on to our final topic for today. Investors in the Middle East, that is bank investors. Interesting news that emerged today out of our Milan bureau, where Rachel Sanderson is on the line, that Unicredit's largest shareholders, which are two Libyan investors, have rather gone to ground. Rachel, tell us a bit more about what's, what's been going on. We have a situation which is with Unicredit, which of course is Italy's largest bank by assets, where the Central Bank of Libya holds a 4.6% stake and the Libyan Investment Authority holds a 2.6% stake, approximately that level. As a result of this stakeholding, which in total is of about 7%, what has happened is that they have a board member and their board member is a gentleman from the Central Bank of Libya who is the vice chairman of Unicredit's board, but he's gone missing. I spoke with Dieter Rampel, Unicredit's chairman, at the weekend, and he confirmed that they still were unable to contact him. And so in the meantime, Mr. Rampel said that they had contingency plans. He wouldn't reveal exactly what these were. But of course, this is a reasonably unprecedented situation. Mr. Rampel wanted to point out that these sort of things had happened when the Berlin Wall fell and when you had some civil turmoil in the former Soviet Union. However, the sanction situation that's also overhanging Unicredit has been of great concern also to some of its other core shareholders, who include the Italian banking foundations. These foundations have historically been fairly powerful on Unicredit's board, and they made quite a big fuss and were instrumental in ejecting the, the former chief executive, Alessandro Profumo, weren't they, a few months ago, when, when it emerged that the Libyans had increased their investment? Yes. One of the reasons the Italian banking foundations go back into the very sort of formation of the Italian banks. And in the case of Unicredit, it has a banking foundation that holds a 4.9% stake that is actually from Verona and another one from Turin that holds a 3% stake and another small foundation which also holds a 3% stake. These banking foundations tend to be quite protectionist and quite provincial. They want to ensure that they have dividend flows uh, in order to put those into their social projects. They were very unhappy about the Libyans taking a stake in the bank. They thought it was unstable. They thought also that by getting the Libyans in, Mr. Proformo was using the Libyans as a way that he didn't then have to pay attention to the demands of the local banking foundations. The situation, as you can imagine, we've got now is, is that the local banking foundations feel that they have been vindicated in their concerns about the Libyan investors. There is some talk amongst senior bankers that the foundations, that there is discussion amongst the foundations about what they could possibly do to buy out the Libyan shareholding. These are in very preliminary discussion stages. I mean, the main point is that the foundations themselves are pretty cash-strapped after years of having their dividends cut, so there's no clarity of where they'd even get the funds from to be able to buy out a 7% stake.
Well, Rachel, thanks very much for joining us on that story. So just to move that whole discussion forward, Lena, you are an, a, an expert on investors from that area. Do you think that you know there's much that can be done to restrict shareholders like the Libyans? The contentiousness in Italy occurred when they actually bought extra shares in the market. It wasn't actually even new shares being placed with them a few months ago when uh, Mr. Profumo was ejected. I think the role of Middle Eastern investors in financial institutions has been key for three years when a lot of them came in and rescued the US banking system and some lost badly on their shareholdings and others made big profits. And obviously the sentiment was a complete turnaround then because the government went cap in hand, almost begging for these funds. But um, interestingly, last week when we were making calls on, on this situation, Every company has to say that they have an open share register and it's very difficult to stop these funds from coming in, especially when they're just taking tiny stakes like asset managers would rather than controlling stakes. As Rachel was pointing out, the, the Libyan stake in, in Unicredit, although big, is, is only 7% in total. So it's but a... they got board seats, which was a key difference, yeah. and then they can start calling the shots somewhat, whereas they were passive investors with some of the stakes in some of the US banks, etc. But I don't think this is going to die down because the more cash-strapped banks are in Europe and the US and and the more um, they need to shore up their balance sheets, I think these sovereign wealth funds will continue playing quite a big role. Charlene, we saw um, talk last week that the Qataris in particular may still be interested in buying into the UK banking system after already having invested in Barclays. There were talks during uh, David Cameron's trip to the region last week that they might like to buy into Royal Bank of Scotland or Lloyd's as and when the government sells down their nationalised stakes. What's your reading as to how that evolves? We had the, the clearest signal yet of their desire to be among the investors, but still obviously it's at an, at an incredibly early stage. I think RBS and Lloyd's and UKFI, which manages the government stakes in that, have had some kinds of discussions with the Qataris, but that's really been just to lay out their strategy and check that they know where they're going. They wouldn't be drawn at all on whether they're likely to be investors in the end. But, you know, given the size of the stakes, it does seem you know, more than possible that they would take at least some of that. You know, I mean, I don't think it would be a controlling state by any means, but they could maybe be involved in sort of some small share purchases that could be done sort of in tandem with a broader public offering or other sales to other investors. But I, yeah, I think they're likely to be there and they're obviously very interested in the UK. That's all we have time for today, sadly. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene and Lena in the studio and Rachel Sanderson down the line in Milan and Justin Bear in New York. And to thank you for listening. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.